0: We're glad that you're here. God is good. So, with that said, we want to turn our attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I want to just make a couple of brief observations. I've been thinking about John, of course, the the revelator, the one who has been given the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, this unveiling of the future events of the world. And I find it interesting... As I've been considering John and his life, why John? Why John? Why did John get this revelation? Why not one of the other disciples? Why not Paul? Why not someone else? Why John? As I began to think about that, I thought, you know, what was it about John and his life that caused the Lamb of God, the Messiah, to want to reveal himself and show himself to John in such a spectacular way. Now, granted, it was for our purpose and our benefit and all the saints throughout history and the ones that are coming. But why John? Well, as I meditated on this, God drew my attention to two passages. One is in John 14, 21. The Bible says there, whoever has my commands, and this is Jesus speaking, whoever has my commands and obeys them He is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and show myself to him. That word is reveal. Interesting. Revelation 3.20, a passage that we've already gone through as we've been looking at the seven churches. Jesus Christ himself says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. This idea of fellowship and dining together is one of the most intimate things in in Far East culture that a person can do with another person that's a friend. And Jesus is saying, I'm knocking and I want access to your heart. If you will let me in, you will taste the finest affair and we will have intimate fellowship together. Let me pull all this together. Three things that I think caused John to be open and receptive and available to God. The first thing is that he had opened his door to an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. We see that in the Bible, don't we? In his relationship with Jesus, he was the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. And he spent the most time with Jesus and he had the most access to Jesus. and he was, the, the, the greatest number of things were revealed about Jesus Christ to John more than any of the other disciples. But it was because John gave Jesus total access to his heart. The second thing is that John loved him. He made his relationship with Jesus Christ his absolute number one priority. You see, Jesus wants that. He wants to be number one. He doesn't want to be number two or number three or number ten. He wants to be number one. And John had accepted that and delighted in that. And then the third thing is that John obeyed Him. How do we obey God? Well, reading the Word, studying it, memorizing it, applying it to our lives, doing His will, surrendering to His purposes, listening to His voice, doing whatever He says, whenever He calls us to do it, on the spot, not waiting, but right then, being obedient. Now, why do I mention all this to you? Well, I'll tell you why. Because... I've been around people at times and if you've been a Christian any length of time as well you've had this happen where somebody says boy God was speaking to me and it was powerful and I remember as a young Christian going well what's his voice sound like? <laughs> Is it a deep baritone or does he sound like George Burns or what does he sound like? You know, I'd never really heard God and it took time for me to cultivate a relationship with God to be able to hear how God speaks. Do you know what I'm convinced of? I'm convinced that God wants to speak to every single one of us daily, not sometimes and on occasion. But God designed and desires to speak to us every single day. But there need to be some things in our life that are in place. He wants to speak to people who want to do His will. He's looking for vessels. If He's got a vessel that's, you know, Conflicted with a thousand and one different things that are priorities in their life, he's probably not going to speak too clearly because he's looking for people that have set their lives aside for him and for him alone and for his purposes. So he speaks not to make us feel good, but to accomplish something. So if you want to hear God's voice, you've got to be ready to move. That means he's first. He's looking for men and women who love him, who are so taken by his wonder and his majesty and his affection and his initiative that nothing else matters. And then he's looking for men and women who will obey him, which really, according to Jesus, is the clearest and fullest expression of genuine love for him. And so I'm convinced as I was thinking about these things, the importance of me communicating to you, God putting it on my heart to share with you that God wants to use you. God wants to speak to your heart. He speaks primarily through the word of God and what he speaks in your heart will never ever conflict with this word. But he does speak and he does guide and he does direct but he's looking for men and women like John. John was available. John opened his heart. John loved the Lord. John was obedient to the Lord. John realized his life was not his own any longer and he had a singular purpose of serving the Lamb. And so... As we go into this and read this this morning, I want you to realize that though John has received a revelation that is unique and will never be repeated again, that God still speaks. And he wants to minister to you even today. And that's what I've been praying all week, is that the Holy Spirit would minister to you even through the teaching and reading of the Word of God. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen! Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, we come before you this morning astounded by your grace, astounded by the visions that you've given John that we might see the future. And Lord, we worship you this morning. And we honor you. We exalt your name. And count it a great privilege that we would be here this morning to hear and study your word together. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take my mouth and my thoughts and use them for your glory. I'm so inadequate. And apart from you, in spite of the preparation, God, I can't touch a man's heart or a woman's heart. Only you can. And I know that you want to feed your flock today and that you want to minister to those that you died for and that you love with an everlasting love. And so use me and open all of our hearts to the unique word that you have for us today. And we ask all these things in the precious and matchless name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Chapter 7 represents a a parenthesis of sorts between chapter 6 and chapter 8. If you recall, chapter 6 was a a very challenging chapter to hear. It was a challenging chapter to read and to preach because it has to do with the opening of this scroll and the seven seals and the first four seals were devastating. And before we get to the... Seventh seal in chapter 8, which will usher in the seven trumpet judgments, which will be even more terrifying. There's this brief parenthesis in heaven. It has a purpose, and we'll talk about that. If you recall from the last verse of chapter 6, the question we were left with is in light of all the wrath of the Lamb and the seals that are being opened and the coming judgments, who can stand? Who is capable of standing up to the wrath of God and to the Lamb? And, of course, the answer, apart from Christ, is no one. But we're going to discover today that because of Christ, there are two groups that can stand. The 144,000 and a great multitude in heaven. Now, John begins this chapter by saying, after this, it's the Greek word, metatauta, it means after the things that have just taken place. What just took place? The opening of the first six seals. What's happening now? Something in heaven, something spectacular, something amazing, something that's important for us to know today. He says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So John begins to see the apocalypsis, this unveiling of these unfolding events before him. And the first thing that he sees after the opening and, and uh, uh, completion of the sixth seal is he's in heaven and he sees four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of God. Now, the four corners of the earth is just a way of, uh, of, of a figure of speech saying like uh, the four corners of the globe. It just means comprehensive. And they're, they're holding back and have power over these four winds. Now we know from prophecy and from the Old Testament that uh, often these winds coming from four corners or quadrants of the earth have uh, a prophetic judgment involved with them. And so the wind that's coming is the wind of these trumpets that are about to be sounded and these bowl judgments that are about to be poured out. And so God is saying that these winds that are about to take place, ushering in, in chapter 8, these four trumpets that are going to be uh, sounded and unleashing tremendous destruction on the earth, he wants this hold back, held back temporarily until some very important things happen, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, we're told here that these angels, in verse 3, are not to harm these angels, the land or the sea or the trees until this seal is put on the servants of God. Now we know that from chapter eight that the land and the sea and the trees are going to be devastated by the coming judgments of God. A third of almost every living thing through the trumpets are going to be destroyed on earth. You remember last week we talked about a quarter of the world's population, one point three billion men and women, the equivalent of China and United States combined, the population base will be destroyed through the first series of judgments, the seven seals. In the second set of judgments, the trumpets, one third of every living thing, including men and women, boys and girls, humanity, will be destroyed. That comes up to over 2.6 billion people. Over half the population of the globe will be slain as a result of these judgments. But before that wind of judgment comes, God wants to protect a group, a very special group of 144,000 people. Now, we look in verse 2 and 3 that this angel was carrying the seal of God. Now, we've talked about the seal before because it's come up in our text before in Revelation, but it's a mark of authenticity or authority or ownership. In fact, in ancient documents, uh, the documents were folded and tied and there would be a lump of of, uh, of pliable wet clay that would be applied to the, uh, to the document. And then the person that was, um, uh, had the authority of that document would place in that wax or in that uh, clay a signet ring. That signet ring was their seal. Or it could be a cylindrical roll that would be rolled over that piece of clay or wax and that authenticated and protected the contents of that document from anyone else. So we know that there's going to be this brief reprieve in God's judgment so this sealing can take place. Now, we're told in verse 4 who these servants of God are. They are the 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, some have said that this is uh, not to be taken literally. That it's, uh, it's, it's thematic. It's, it's pointing to something else. It's po- possibly pointing to the church or pointing to... Some other group of people, and we'll talk about some of the theories on this, but uh, clearly from the text, when you look at it, it couldn't be clearer. I mean, God goes to great lengths. It's actually a little tedious to read through that section. This tribe, 12,000. That tribe, 12,000. Why does God do that? So that it makes it clear without any question that he's talking about literal Jews and a literal 12,000 for a literal total of 144,000 men and women who will come to Christ, they're called Messianic Jews, and we'll talk a little bit uh, more about that in a moment. But God wants to seal these 144,000 before the unleashing of these winds from the four quarters of the earth, which are representative of his coming judgment with the the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Now, we know that this isn't the first time in Scripture that men and women have been protected during God's judgment. Do you remember, of course, the book of Exodus? Exodus and the exodus from Egypt of the people of Israel. you remember that oftentimes, about for almost half of the plagues, the Jews suffered with the Egyptians? But then there was a whole series culminating in the final judgment, which was the taking of the firstborn, where the Jews went untouched. They were protected by God. And so God, in His own way, had sealed Israel, even back then. We have the first indication of a ceiling actually in the book of Genesis, chapter 4, at the very beginning. Do you know who it was? Cain. What did Cain do? Cain murdered his brother, spilled the first blood in the history of the world. And as a result, he was banished and was made to be a wanderer. His biggest worry, was it, was it that God he'd lost his relationship with God? or was it, No, it was, it was like, I'm going to get killed if I'm out there by myself. And so God, even in His mercy for someone who had been uh, who had committed such a heinous act, gave him a seal on the forehead to protect him so that no one would murder him. In Ezekiel we have another sealing. We're we're discovering in in Ezekiel chapter nine, verse three through six, great reading by the way if you want to write that reference down on your own. But uh, during a time of Israel's disobedience. The temple worship had been corrupted. Abominations were taking place within the priesthood and filtering all the way down to the people of God. They were worshiping idols. They were having uh, uh, immorality rampant within their culture. There were all kinds of things that were just abhorrent to God. God sent an angel. And he said, go throughout the entire city. And I want you to put a mark on the foreheads of any man or woman who's been grieving over the terrible condition of of this people in this temple. In other words, anyone that is broken as I am broken, God speaking, over the sin of Israel, put a mark on their head. In that next verse, he tells us why, because then he sent an angel, basically an angel of death, that went through, beginning at the temple of God and with the priests, and slaughtered everyone that didn't have the mark. It's interesting to note that this mark in the book of Ezekiel is actually the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Tau. And if you've ever seen the letter written, it actually looks like a cross. Interesting. That way back then, God was putting a mark, potentially, possibly, of a cross on the foreheads of his saints. Looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ to have Obviously, would be the one who would redeem us and protect us from everything. Now, we don't know if this mark is going to be visible or invisible. If you, any of you have been reading, anybody reading a Tim LaHaye's series on the End Times, everybody seems to be reading that. It's a great series. It's a fast read, and it's very encouraging. And uh, his his uh, his theory on this, and it is a theory, by the way. So don't just because Tim LaHaye wrote it, don't it doesn't mean that that's exactly what's going to happen. But it's a good theory. It's a it's as good as any other theory. He thinks that uh, that the mark is going to be placed on believers and but it will be invisible to them. In other words, if you look in the mirror you can't see it. But if another believer sees it they'll say, ah, oh, you're a believer and you'll be connected. But they won't be able to see their own but you'll be able to see theirs. Anyway, we don't know. We really don't know. The fact is, is that that mark is going to protect these 144,000 through a very, very troubling and difficult time when most who believe and call on the name of Jesus Christ during this time will be murdered and martyred for their faith, but not these 144,000, not at least until God has completed his work in and through them. Now, I find it interesting as well that although, uh, gee, I don't see any of you with marks on your foreheads yet, and I I look, I keep going, maybe, maybe, no, okay. Uh, None of us will have that mark because, of course, the church, as we talked about, will already be gone. We'll already be in the presence of God. This mark is going to be taking place after the rapture, After chapter 4, with 144,000 what I believe are Messianic Jews who will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, that mark is going to protect them during this time so that they can finish this work, but it's interesting to me that the Bible uses the very same language for believers now. And the passage that I want to read to you briefly is Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, where we find out that when we were included in Christ... When we heard the gospel of our salvation and having believed you were marked with a seal or as it says in 2 Corinthians one twenty two, a seal of ownership the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You remember how we talked about uh, at the beginning of this study when we were looking at the scroll that it's the title deed to the earth. God is going to redeem not only the earth but men and women for himself and he's going to reconcile them to God. And so even as believers, though we may not have a mark on our forehead, God has already marked you. You are already marked with the promise seal of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing as a deposit what is coming. And we're going to talk about what's coming in a minute, and it's extremely exciting. So these believers are marked, and I find it interesting that this mark, uh, you know, Satan is, uh, he really isn't, capable of generating anything new. He doesn't have the power to do that. Only God has the power to create something out of nothing. But Satan really doesn't have that power. But So what Satan does is he takes what God has created and he perverts it and twists it. And so Satan, just as we talked about last week with a white horse, he tries to come out first. you, you, you ever remember in the Olympics when uh, the marathon is run and people come into the Colosseum at, at the final seven laps or so and there always seems to be some nut that runs up there and looks all sweaty and everything and he's running around carrying a flag and he, just, he didn't even run the marathon, you know what I'm saying? That's what Satan is constantly trying to do. He's trying to get the praise and worship that belongs to Jesus Christ alone and he's preempting Jesus Christ. And we're going to find that he does the very same thing with this mark. He's got to counterfeit it. He just can't keep his hands off of people. And so he puts a mark on the forehead of those who refuse or reject Jesus Christ and who want to buy and sell, who want to eat, who want to drink, who want to have a job. Because the Bible says unless you have this mark during this time of tribulation, you won't have access to any of these opportunities. And so he puts the mark on the foreheads of those that belong to him. And that number is the number of the beast, number 666. There's some of you that I don't know here today. So I don't know if everyone has a saving knowledge of Christ and if you are born again and if you've been marked by the Spirit of God. But if for some reason you make a decision not to receive Christ as your Savior before the rapture and the church is gone and you're facing the terrible times that will come, you still have an opportunity to receive life in Jesus Christ, but it will come at the expense of your life more than likely. But for those who compromise, for those who waffle, for those who fail to receive Christ and are hungry and let hunger and thirst and a need for shelter and for beautiful things drive their life, So much so that you receive the mark of the beast. The Bible says that it is an irrefutable mark. There is no coming back once you receive that mark. You are destined for eternity, separated from God. So if there's anyone here that has not received Christ and fails to receive Christ before the rapture of the church, which could take place at any moment, remember, don't receive the mark. It would be better to die a martyr's death than to face eternity in the torment of hell with Satan and his angels. Now, there, it's interesting, there have been a number of groups that have claimed to be the 144,000. It seems that everybody wants to be in this elite group. We've got uh, several groups, there are many more than this, but I'm going to mention a few Seventh-day Adventists. Some of you may not realize that they believe they are the 144,000. In fact, if you are a Seventh-day Adventist and you're not a part of that fellowship, you can't be in the 144,000. And they don't really talk about this much and I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just giving you information that this is what they believe. And if you're not part of their church, you don't have a chance. The Jehovah's Witness also believe they're the selected 144,000. The Worldwide Church of God, the Rastafarian Movement, all these different groups and more believe that they are the 144,000. Now, it's interesting because they are having to go through all kinds of linguistical and mental gymnastics to make this work now because when they started... As a group of about 10 or 15 people in their home, you know, 20 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever it was, they were thinking, hey, we're the 144,000. So we've got to go out and win the rest of these 144,000, you know, or 136,000 that, you know, that we haven't got yet. But the fact is, is that all of these groups have surpassed the number of 144,000. So you know what they've had to do? Oh, they had to change their theology. Everything's different now. It's not just a singular 144,000. Now we've got the 144,000 in the throne room of God who are the really, you know, elect. And then we've got the 144,000 who are serving those who are at the throne room of God. And then we've got the outer court 144,000. then we've got the, the 144,000 that are on the earth. I mean, it goes on and on and on because, of course, even after that, you don't even have close to enough 144,000 to cover all the people in their group. So they work really hard because, of course, they want to be in that group and they know not very many people are going to make it. It's a very hopeless feeling because they believe that these are not just evangelists. They believe these are the saints of God. And unless you're in this group, you're not in heaven. So it's, it's a very uh, it really is based in a, in a misunderstanding of Scripture and what this group represents. Now, these are literal tribes. Jesus goes to great length to make that clear. He's talking about Jews. He's talking about Messianic Jews. You see, the Bible says in Romans 9 through 11 that there was a time and still a time when the Jews have rejected the Messiah. They will not accept Him as Messiah. They're waiting for their Messiah, as I mentioned last week, and they're going to get the wrong guy. They're going to pick the Antichrist. thinking He's the guy because he's going to help build their temple or rebuild the temple. But the fact is is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But they don't see it yet. Now, after the the rapture of the church, something amazing is going to happen on earth, and I can't fully explain it to you, but I can tell you what that event will be: 144,000 Jews who had rejected the Messiah, who were left on the earth after the rapture of the church, will convert to Christianity, and they will call on Yeshua for the first time. This 144,000 are not going to be uh, wimpy Christians. These are going to be like Paul's, 144,000 of them. They are going to be sold out. They are going to be preaching with all of their heart. They are going to be modeling. They are going to be instructing people in the way of Jesus Christ and how to escape and how to understand the events that are unfolding, the tragic events of the end of the world and interpreting those events in a way that people can understand. And so these are Messianic Jews. I, I wish I had time to talk about Dan. If you are a... Bible scholar at all, one of the tribes that's clearly missing is Dan. Why isn't Dan in there? Why is Manasseh in there instead of Dan? Well, I'll give you two theories. They're just theories but very possible. Dan may have been omitted from this list because of the tribe's connection with idolatry. In Judges 18 and First Kings 12, we find that Dan always seems to be the first tribe to go the wrong direction. They always seem to be the tribe that leads the other tribes away from a pure devotion to God. And that's a possibility as to why they've been left out of this list of 144,000. Dan may also be admitted due to its connection, potential connection with the Antichrist. Uh, based on Genesis 49.17 that you can look up on your own uh, about a serpent. And uh, it's very interesting reading. It's very... Um, uh, there's a parallel, actually, in the book of Genesis about the serpent nipping at the heel. Do you remember that? It's a very similar passage, but it refers to Dan in the prophecy of his father over Dan as the father was dying. But um, there's a rabbinical tradition that states that the tribe of Dan is going to produce the Antichrist. In fact, uh, Hippolytus, who was an uh, early church father, says in his writings, as the Christ was born of the tribe of Judas, so the Antichrist will be born of the tribe of Dan. So it's possible that Dan was eliminated or omitted from this list because of the tribe's unfaithfulness. But again, this group is uh, 144,000 selected, chosen Messianic Jews. Do I believe it's a literal 144,000? Yes. Do I believe there are 12,000 in each tribe? Yes. Well, then I hear the question from people, well, what about the lost tribes? Nobody really knows. And I'm saying, you're right. What about those guys? Where are they? Does any Jew really know what tribe they're from? No. Some people have a priestly last name of Cohen and they think they're from the Levites, but they don't really know. Who knows? God knows. God doesn't have any problem keeping genealogies. Have you figured that out if you've read the Bible? (laughs) He knows the beginning from the end. He's not confused about who is from what tribe. And by his sovereign choice, he's going to elect 12,000 from each of these tribes and the people won't even know they're from that tribe. But God is going to elect them. It doesn't matter that they don't know. Their purpose and mission is to proclaim the gospel fearlessly and that's exactly what they're going to do. And I thought about this and I thought, you know, if God can take 12 ragtag, uneducated fishermen and turn the world upside down, what in the world is going to happen when 144,000 of these people are released to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Powerful. And then I thought... What would happen if every man and woman in our church made a decision to give everything to God? What would happen if the men and women on this island who call on the name of Christ said, No more compromise, no more sin? No more putting off the work of God for some later date when I have more time. No more excuses. I want to serve God and I want to proclaim His gospel. What do you think would happen? I think this place would be turned upside down for the glory of God. I want to be a man like that. And I see in you, as I've gotten to know you and pray for you, That verse in that second or third to the last song that we sang is that you are being changed from glory to glory. And I can see in you the power of God. And I can see in you the love of Jesus Christ. And I can see in you the hunger to do His will and to follow Him with everything you've got. And all I want to do is I want to fan that flame and encourage you to hold nothing back because the time is short and God has called you. You have an anointing on your life. You've been marked. And you have a mission. My encouragement to you is to let nothing get in the way. Not the flesh, not the world, not the devil. And give yourself fully to his purposes. Now, John, in verse 9 indicates that he sees a great multitude that no one could count. Innumerable, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This is referring to a Gentile population. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out to the Lord in a loud voice. And we'll talk about what they cried out in a moment. But in front of the Lamb, we see this multitude that's innumerable. It can't be counted. They're from every tribe and nation and people and language. Again, these Jews are winning not only Jews to Christ, but they're winning a massive amount of Gentiles to the faith. And they're wearing white robes. These men and women who are before the throne of God, this multitude, are wearing white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, the Bible tells us even though the world finds the idea of blood and talking about blood, in fact, you know, a lot of Christian churches don't really like to talk about blood too much anymore. Or the old rugged cross or sin. But the blood is critical. Without it, there is no remission of sins. We're told in Hebrews 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you know it at all, or if you're becoming acquainted with it. The Bible says that he has set up a model for us to see and perceive and understand so that when Christ would come we would understand what the blood meant in the Old Testament they had a sacrificial system if you sin the Bible says sin requires death it requires the death of the person who committed the sin how big does a sin matter or count how how big does a sin have to be in order to require death exaggeration a small lie a lustful look the smallest of things the penalty is death so, God, in His grace, set up an opportunity, an avenue by which men and women could receive forgiveness. So, a lamb was killed, or a boat, a goat, not a boat. Difficult to kill a boat. But a goat would be killed, or, or a bull. And, and, and the person or the family that had committed that sin had to put their hands on that goat or that bull while its throat was slit, and the blood spilled on the ground, and the life left that animal. So that every time I would have to come, I would be faced with the consequences of my sin and the costliness of my sin. Fast forward to Jesus Christ. Not a physical lamb, but described as the Lamb of God. Preaching the gospel, explaining to men and women how they can be forgiven of sins. Finally, hanging on a cross, spilling His blood, giving up His life in front of the whole world that we could see what it cost Him so that we could be forgiven of sin. Jesus says, without that shed blood, there's no remission of sin. In Romans 5, we're told that God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Not perfect, not cleaned up, nothing good about us. While we were still sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us. And it goes on and says, since we have now been justified by His blood, in other words, made right with God, the penalty's been paid, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath Through him. What wrath? The wrath of revelation. The wrath of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. God wants to preserve you. And he's promised that for men and women who will wash themselves in the blood of the Lamb. And this multitude of believers has done so. They've got white robes. And go figure. I can't explain it. How do you get... I can never get blood out of a shirt... And yet, these people wash themselves in the blood of the Lamb, and their raiments and garments are white as snow. The miraculous power of the work of God to make a man or a woman who's been stained by sin as pure as the driven snow. This group of people, they're holding palm branches. If you recall, in Leviticus, palm branches had to do with the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a very festive time. Fast forward to the book of John, the entry of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. What were the people doing? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're laying down their robes. They're getting palm branches and they're waving them. It's a a glorious time of declaration of the Messiah and His coming to save. And this group is doing the very same thing, but not on earth. Instead, before the throne of God. And the scripture says that they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to his Lamb. It's interesting as I talk with people who um, I share the Lord with, and I love sharing the Lord. I just love to get in conversations with, with men and women who don't know Jesus Christ and lovingly you know, present Jesus. To, to just share what God has done and to share his word, it's a, it's a tremendous privilege and an honor to speak in behalf of Jesus Christ. But this group says that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. And so many people I run into have a problem with that. They can accept Jesus as a great teacher. They can accept Him as an ascended master. They can accept Him as a great role model. But they have a terrible time accepting Him as exclusively the avenue through which a man or a woman comes to a saving relationship with God. They find that Narrow and selfish and unfair when you look at all the different groupings of people on the earth who worship other gods. They say, is it possible that you're telling me that all these other people are going to be lost? And I say, yes. But you don't have to be one of them. But it's, isn't it a difficult thing to acknowledge that because the, the, the question itself is begging the answer, well, yeah, that doesn't seem very fair. But God is extremely fair, and we find that through the book of Revelation. He extends opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, but he will be worshipped on his own terms, in his own way. That's his prerogative. What does the Bible say about this? Because I notice in this passage, it doesn't say that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb and, and to Buddha and to Shiva and Mary Baker Eddy and you know to Joseph Smith. I mean, it doesn't go on. It just stops there. So the question is, is it really mean what it says? Well, let's look at some other scriptures. And you've got them noted there for you. I'll read them briefly. John 14:16, Jesus speaking. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If there weren't anything else in the Word of God, that pretty much settles that question. But there is more. Acts 4, 4 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name, no other God. Now, if that wasn't clear enough, maybe there's somebody that didn't quite catch those passages and the significance, but in First John we're told that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has a Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then, of course, the passage that's even in your bulletin this morning that is so powerful. John 3.36, Whoever rejects the Son, God's wrath remains on him. We can't come to God on our terms. We've got to come to God on His terms. His terms and His way and His truth is Jesus Christ. The door is open, but you've got to come on His terms. And these men and women, this multitude have accepted the terms of salvation ordained by God and they are in His throne room. Having said this, verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces. Remember, this happens a lot in Revelation. Before the throne, and they worshiped God. It means to prostrate themselves. They prostrated themselves. They got flat on their faces before God and worshipped Him and they said, Amen! Now what does Amen mean? Does anybody know? So be it. I agree. We have a prayer meeting on Monday night. In fact, we meet right in one of these rooms over here. And it's a fabulous time. If you haven't come, you're really missing out on a, on a great time. What did I say? Monday. Monday night. That's a men's meeting. Friday night is the prayer meeting. And uh, we have been reading Psalms to each other. But... When we started, we were kind of reading like salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and amen, praise, glory, and wisdom, and thanks, you know. And we go through it. and I, No, no, that's not okay. We've got to do it different. And actually, uh, Edwin's not here, but I kind of embarrassed him a little in the service on Sunday. But I've been t- training Edwin how to read like a, a, a preacher, like an old-time kind of preacher. And, you know, Edwin, he's the servant of God, but he's, you know, kind of on the quiet side. And uh, so I've been working with him on how to read Uh, and we get in there and, and Edwin is reading and now Edwin has become the role model for all of us because he couldn't read standing down or sitting down so he had to stand up and if he were reading it this is how Edwin would read it Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever Amen! Probably pegged out our recording here but when you read Psalms and you see David sharing, I don't see David saying, oh Lord, you're so good and we worship you and we're all gathered here today to exalt your name and proclaim your mighty deeds. You really are wonderful. No way! You know, the scripture says he's on his feet, he dances, he falls down, he stands up, I mean, his hands are raised, he's worshiping God. So as we look at this passage, these people are exploding They can't, it says they're crying out. They're on their face. They're worshiping God for who He is. These angels and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they're prostrating themselves before God and they're saying, Amen. You know, I'm getting a little addicted to this thing. And it's not really Calvary style, and if any of you are from Calvary, you're probably going, man, this guy is like a loose cannon. But uh, the fact is, is that when we read the scripture that way in that room, something very powerful takes place. There's something in my heart that leaps. And when Edwin or one of the other brothers is reading, we're shouting in there. And we're saying, praise God, and hallelujah, and glory, We worship you. There's something in my heart that when I hear the Word of God read with power like that, there's something that happens to me. And I want to get to my feet and I want to worship the Lamb. And I want to be before the throne of God on my face in the place that we all really belong. And so this crowd glories in the sevenfold praise of the characteristics and nature of praise to God. And then John is faced with a question. The identity of the multitude. Who are they? Well, we find out after John comes to the the elder comes to him and says, You know, John, do you know who these people are? And John says, Look, I don't know. I just got here. I'm on my first tour. You know, you know a lot more than I do. Maybe you could inform me. And so the the elder says, Okay, I'll I'll tell you who these people are. And we're looking in verse fourteen. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We've got two indications of who this group is. First of all, they've come out of the tribulation. In other words, out of the middle of the tribulation. These are not Christians from the church who have been raptured. These are people who missed the rapture, had not received Jesus Christ as Savior, but following and subsequent to the rapture, accepted Christ through the witness of these 144,000 Messianic Jews. And they've come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now, why are they in heaven? They were martyred which will be the destiny of almost every man and woman who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ following the rapture of the church. And so this great innumerable multitude is before the throne and they've washed their robes in the, lamb, in the blood of the Lamb. And then we're told in verse 15 some very significant things about them because they're finally home. You know, I remember when I lived in Boston and uh, there's a lot of traffic there. By the way, it's like one of my favorite cities in the whole world. I just think that place is a wonderful place to go. If you've never been there, it's, it's uh, just steeped in history, it's unique, it's uh, quaint, it's amazing, but they've got terrible traffic. And I remember oftentimes going home from work and from seminary, and I'd be stuck in like two hours of traffic. We don't have that here, although Kapa sometimes can get pretty jammed up. But uh, sitting in traffic is not a lot of fun. But I remember, and some of you have seen these signs before if you've ever been on the mainland, you're coming out of the, of the business district where everybody is rushing into in the morning and then rushing out in the afternoon back into the suburbs. And in the business district, there's invariably a condo complex with a big sign on the outside that says, if you lived here, you'd be home. <laughs> so every day you have to face this sign That said, if you lived here, you would be home now. I hated that sign. Because I had to put up with another hour and a half of traffic. But this group of people is very much like that. Is that Jesus is saying, if you lived here, if you received me as your Savior, if you had surrendered your life, you'd be home now. Not in his kingdom eternal yet, but we would be already at home having found our place of rest in him. Now. You don't have to wait. You'll be at home now with Him, in relationship with Him now, if you know Jesus Christ. Now, we find out a number of things, actually nine things, that are distinctive about being home. The first is that they are before the throne of God. That is the destination. That's where we'll all be one day, who call on the name of God. They serve Him night and day in His temple. They're, in, they're encompassed by His tent. If you look in the NIV, it says that... Um, Uh, he's going to spread his tent over them. This points back to Leviticus talking about the tabernacle where God is going to take up his dwelling and residence among the people and that he is going to expand his tent to include the borders of his tent to include the people of Israel. And so God says that you are going to be encompassed by his tent included in the people of God. The Bible says in Revelation 21.3 in the final passage, passages here of the book that we'll be looking at in the months to come that there was a loud voice that came from the throne saying now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be uh, with them and he will be their God. You see, in the, o- in the Old Testament in the beginning in a- in, with Adam and Eve in the garden God was actually with them. They got to walk with him and talk to him and enjoy his company, his presence, and all the wisdom he had he was sharing and just, just giving himself away transparently. But sin, sin came in and broke that relationship. And since that time, God has had one objective, and that's to bring that intimate fellowship back into existence. And at the end of all things, that's going to happen. Is that he is going to encompass us in his tent and allow us intimacy to talk with him. You can ask him questions. You can love him. You can just enjoy being with him. And the Bible also says in this passage that these people are never going to hunger again. Now, why would that be important to these people who are hearing this message? Well, the reason is is that hunger is going to be a significant part of the tribulation. There's going to be famine everywhere. But Jesus says, when you come into my kingdom, and he's talking to these people here, never again will you hunger. Never again will you thirst. There are plagues coming that are going to destroy the water sources of the entire world with bitterness that brings death and also with blood that will make it undrinkable. And yet Jesus, God says, never again will you be thirsty. They are going to suffer and they did suffer and they died because of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that they're not going to be scorched by the sun and the sun won't beat it down upon them. Now why is that important? Well, because we know uh, from the judgments of God that there is going to come in the uh, tribulation time in chapter 8, the sun will be so hot and the Bible doesn't say they're going to just be scorched the Bible says that fire is going to come from the sun and it is going to destroy men and women it's going to destroy humanity population basis but Jesus says that these people who are in his presence will never again be scorched by the sun and they're going to be shepherded by the lamb look at verse 7 the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and I just think oh I can't wait you know He's the perfect shepherd. What does Jesus say about himself? I am the good shepherd. And Jesus is going to lead and is leading this tribulation saints next to cooling, refreshing streams of living, eternal water. And not long from now, we are going to be partakers of that same living water. And he finishes by saying that God in his gracious, tender mercy, is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know, the Bible makes it clear that and we experience it in our own lives, is that this life is not easy. Being a Christian is a challenge. It's a it's a calling. It's definitely worth everything that God calls us to give. But it's not a cakewalk either. It takes a real godly man and a godly woman filled by the power of God in order to walk the walk. And the suffering and the difficulties that we even go through, though nearly, not nearly to be compared with the great tribulation, God says that He knows every sorrow, every heartache you've ever had, every tear you've ever shed. And when you come into His presence, it will all be wiped away, never to be remembered again. We're almost home. We're almost home. In the meantime, we need to be about the Father's business. We need to be doing as well. We need to be proclaiming the gospel. We need to be turning away from sin, fleeing evil and immorality. And doing those things that honor and please him. God has a plan for you. He wants you to be fruitful. He knows everything about you. But very much like John, he's looking for men and women who will open the door of their heart to intimate fellowship with him, who will place him high above everything else, making him number one, and who will obey him no matter what the cost. I'm praying that I will be a man like that. I want to be a man like that. And I've been praying for you and pray for you regularly that God will make you men and women like that. And my exhortation to you this morning is that you would desire and cry out to God to be a man or a woman who is fully committed to the purposes of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Together, It's been a great blessing and reading your word is... There's nothing like it. There's nothing that can be compared to it. And Lord, we give ourselves again afresh to you and say, Father, Lord Jesus, come. But in the meantime, we ask, Father, that we would be able to walk faithfully in obedience to you, doing your will, honoring your word, loving you with everything that we've got and serving you with all the energy and the power that you give us in your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we thank you. You have been faithful in answering our prayers this morning. And we want to acknowledge you and honor you and say thank you for your guidance and the fact that you desire to speak to us and lead us on a daily basis. Open our ears that we can hear. And Father, we pray that you would use us for your glory and that many would be brought in through the testimony that you give us of Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we just finished by saying, Maranatha, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.